You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast. I'm Andrea Myers and I'm here with Megan Flynn and a very special guest today, Dr. Beth Shelley. Beth is a doctor of physical therapy and is board certified in women's health. She's been working in the field of pelvic physical therapy for over 30 years and has authored over 15 professional chapters and multiple articles. She lectures to medical professionals all over the world and owns a private PT practice in Moline, Illinois, where she treats outpatients with all forms of pelvic floor dysfunction. So Beth is here to talk to us about a really important topic for our listeners, which is urinary incontinence in runners and what to do about it. You know, I've always known that it's common for women who have given birth to experience stress incontinence when they're running. But I didn't realize until Beth shared all of this great research with me that it's so common in younger women, women who have never had babies. So it's such an important topic to discuss. We don't really hear it discussed a lot in the running world. So we hope that we bring you some useful information on what to do about it and things that could potentially be causing it. Yes, it is such an important topic. And I, you know, I've been doing this, as you said, for a very long time. And over the years, I have seen more and more people sharing. I'm really pleased that it is occurring. Um, just recently, we have the advertisement about absorbent underpants. Have you seen those? I have, yeah. Yeah. What do you think about wearing absorbent underpants while you're running? Well, I wonder how um, breathable they might be. But, you know, if they're comfortable, if they don't ride up, they don't give you a wedgie, then those might be a nice option for people who experience urinary leakage when they're running. Do you have any experience with your patients, Beth, who run and use those? It, they're so new. Yeah. I have not had patients that have brought it in. Um, it kind of bothers me a bit when the biggest treatment that we're talking about is containment. Right. We're talking about just trying to keep it in one place. Now, to be fair, these underpants are also being used for sweat, which I think can be really helpful uh, to decrease some of the skin irritations that can occur from sweating. Oh, absolutely. So. I think that's a good option. And also they say that it can be used for menstrual um, to improve uh, that containment. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe, you know, at the first couple days or the last couple days, maybe that is a useful thing. 
Uh, both of those things are normal. All women have menstrual cycles and all women sweat down in their netherworlds. Right. So, okay, I get that. But urinary leakage is not normal. It is very common, however. And in some of the um, research that I have pulled together, um, very recent research, one uh, that was done as a scoping review, collected 100 articles on urinary leakage in athletes, not runners in particular, so all of the whole group, and also males and females. 100 articles. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of information. So it's not new, and it, thank goodness, is something that is now um, gaining some research dollars because we need that. The really interesting thing is that only 12 of them addressed males, now, we do understand that females have more, right? So we know that there's more of that. But certainly we need to have uh, information about the male issue as well. I'm kind of sad that it's so low. Right, because I the that um, scoping review that you shared, I think the prevalence in men was around 15%, right? It, it is definitely lower. Mm -hmm. And uh, overall, the um, occurrence of leakage in men is, uh, is much more after they have uh, passed 60, 70, and especially with men who've had prostatectomy, the, the removal of the prostate generally due to cancer. So we know already that um, the system, the male system is better at holding. Yes. And, and so when you look at the female numbers, overall, a different research paper, uh, overall, the athletes, um, all the different sports of female, about 54% were leaking. More than half. That's so crazy. More than half are leaking urine. Um, now, just to be comparing, in the general public, it, females, it's about 20 to 40. So a great range and partly related to age and uh, having babies. So, uh, you know, there's a variety, but way higher in the athletes. The other thing that's quite interesting is the recognition in studies that this is underreported and underdiagnosed. It is difficult to tell your physician or nurse practitioner that this is a challenge, especially when you're 20 or 30. And, and oftentimes women who haven't had babies feel like they're not entitled to have leakage, right? right. So you've had a baby, okay, it makes sense, and so I'm, I'm entitled. But there must be something really wrong if I haven't had a baby and I'm leaking, so they really, they don't want to tell. But here's the worst part about it. When they do tell, they don't get helped. And I'm really hoping that this talk will give some ideas of things that you can consider yourself, but also then as you move forward, um, what might you stomp your feet and ask for, or just take it upon yourself to find a person who can help you. Uh, because unfortunately, when you do tell, sometimes the person who you're telling really doesn't know what the options are, or they don't think it's a big deal. Oh, you're only 20. Don't worry about it. It'll get better. Um, which is all really very sad because it impacts our lives. 
And in a study from many, many years ago, 1994, uh, Carrie Bow did a study where she looked at the occurrence of leakage in the, um, in the fitness center. So uh, what's happening there in the gym? And what she found was that among those who were leaking, about 40% had either stopped or changed their exercise because of the leaking only. Right. And that's so sad because, you know, the three of us know that there are things to be done about it. But unfortunately, a lot of people think it's just something they're going to have to deal with. And often that does lead them to quit exercise or change what they do. Yeah, it is. It is quite sad. We need people to be moving and and working out and exercising. And, and if that becomes miserable because of leakage, it's really difficult to keep doing it. And it is after reading through like all the articles, it really brings up the awareness that it's something that is completely ignored in a lot of different, um, in pretty much all of exercise. Nobody really addresses the pelvic floor musculature. So Beth, would you be able to give us um, just like a basic definition for the listeners about urinary incontinence and the different kinds that exist? Absolutely. There are a, a large number of different types of leakage. But when you're looking at the the first category, there's generally two ways to separate it out. One is called stress incontinence. And that's not emotional stress. It's the pressure that comes from above on top of the bladder that makes the leak. So this is generally thought of things like coughing, sneezing, laughing, yelling can do it. But this is what uh, the athletes are reporting. Stress urinary incontinence, often because of the forces that come down as you take each step, we have ground forces that react from above and press down. And, and you know, when you look at other um, types of uh, sports, uh, volleyball ranked the highest in a particular study, a systematic review, 75% of volleyball players. 73% of trampolinist, and then the, the runners came in at 44. But you can get a sense about these high impact, things like hit class or step aerobics, things that have a, a large impact down, whereas other things like cycling is not as much impact or swimming and those things have uh, different mechanisms. So stress urinary incontinence. The other large category is urge, urgency urinary incontinence. And this is the thing that you see on the TV with a little bladder that's pulling the lady's arm. Got to go, got to go, got to go right now. And she can't hold her bladder while she's going to the bathroom and the pee's coming out along the way. So that's a very different mechanism, and it is not as common in athletes, but it can occur, um, and it does require quite a different approach. So our talk today is going to focus on the stress urinary incontinence that typically would happen with runners. But it is important to realize that if that urgency is a challenge, there are treatments, conservative things that can be done. When you were two or three, somebody trained your bladder. Well, the reality is 
that bladders do not stop being trainable. So we can train it again. The hard part is that if you're not careful, you're training it badly. Interesting. Ah, you might be thinking mm-hmm. about some of the things that you do that might be training it badly. Now, this all speaks to that urgency urinary incontinence. I just wanted to say that there are things that can be done. So you should ask if that's the big part of your leakage. So those are the two biggest types. From there, we go on to more complexities, things that would be more common in women with neurological disorders or related to uh, urinary retention. They're just more complex. Yes. And so when you when you do like a pelvic floor examination, would you be able to go through like the main large muscle groups that you do look for that you test when you when you go through an evaluation? Yes, and the overall name of the skeletal muscles. So skeletal muscles are those muscles that are under our voluntary control, like your biceps and your thigh. We can strengthen them. We can make them contract better, and we can make them relax better. So the skeletal muscles in the pelvic region as a whole are called pelvic floor muscles. So the overall exercise is called pelvic floor muscle training. Now, some people call this the Kegel muscle. Some people call them Kegel exercises, and that's fine. Um, it's the same thing, really. Uh, but it is... it quite more complex than just squeezing and relaxing. Now, when you think about the pelvis, starting from the outside of the body, obviously we'll see the skin first, and then there are three basic layers as you go in. It's a three-dimensional structure, so it's not super simple, but uh, to simplify it, there are three basic layers. The first layer, there's several muscles there that are not related to continence or holding your urine. They're related to sexual function. Then the next layer, these are the ones, the, there are ones that are around the urethra, the sphincter muscles, right? Does that make sense that they're the, the squeezers this way? And those sphincter muscles, those are important for being dry. But the deepest layer, people sometimes call that the pubococcygeus or the levator ani. Now, I don't want to get into the complexities of all these names, but just so that you've heard them, if you see it in a paper or you are reading something that says those names, they're just referring to either the layer or the particular muscle. They all work together. So um, don't get hung up on the individualness. But this muscle layer, the deepest one, that goes all the way from the pubic bone all the way to the tailbone. So it's this big sling all the way from front to back, and it goes all the way from sit bone to sit bone. And it's often useful when you're listening to this, if you can, Think about what you're sitting on, especially if it's a relatively firm chair. You can feel your two sit bones there, right? Feel the sit bones. There they are. In between the sit bones is this group of muscles. Goes all the way from the front to the back. Now, what this muscle does is it actually lifts the structures. And as you lift, you're lifting up the bladder, the uterus, and the 
uh, colon or rectal area, and that lift changes the angle of the bladder to closed. When that um, hammock goes down, that changes the angle to open. So when we want to urinate or move our bowels, then we lower that muscle. That's the relaxation state. So things open and everything comes out. When we don't want to let things out, then we hope our muscle will lift and hold up. And, you know, it's against this downward force we were talking about before. So that's the pelvic floor muscle. And the lift is part of the hallmark of a proper contraction. So if it's okay with you, I would love to describe how a person could tell themselves if they're doing it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be nice to know? Am I doing it? Is it the right thing? Well, first of all, the best verbal instruction for pelvic floor muscle contraction in women is hold back gas. All right, so this is the rectal sphincter, which usually has more nerve input in women. It's a thicker part of the muscle, so we can tell what we're doing. And it is not the gluteal muscles, so no outside muscles. If this is what you see when you do what you call a kegel, you are doing the wrong thing. All right, so no, no, no. It should not be something that anyone else can see. It is just the rectum. Just pinch the rectum. That is the best instruction for women. So for men, even though we don't have too much of that, the best verbal instruction for pelvic floor muscle training is shorten the penis. Pull it back. That's how you close the urethra. Men and women are very different in this way. So you could, just sitting there in the chair, contract your muscle and see if you can sense that it comes away from the chair. And then when you relax, it comes back to the chair. And then when you squeeze, it goes away from the chair. And when you relax, it comes back to the chair. You can feel it to some degree when you're sitting. You also could, if you're very brave, you could take a mirror and look on the outside of you. Lying down on your back is usually the easiest way to see that. And the spot that you're looking at is the little piece of skin or the little area right in the middle, between the labia and the rectum, right there in the middle. So when you look there and you do a proper contraction, you should see it go towards your head. And then as you relax, it comes back towards the mirror. Squeeze up towards the head, relax back back towards the mirror. So these are simple ways that you can tell if you're doing it correctly. And it's really important if you do not see it move, or especially if you see it move towards the mirror, when you do what you think is a squeeze, if it goes the opposite direction, then you've got to stop right away and get some help. But if you see it move, then, you know, maybe there's some things that you can do on your own. But it's really important to understand that this is very, very complicated. So I wonder if we could talk about some of the things that the research found related to runners and what the risk factors are for leakage. That would be great, Beth. I think that would help our listeners out a lot. Yes, it's very interesting because it's not just one thing. It's not as simple as you think. And, And what I tell my patients is, in the body, 
one plus one does not always equal two. Very true. Right? (laughs) It is just more complicated. So one of the studies that looked at 52 articles of female athletes who have had no babies. Ah. Okay, so (laughs) this is a lot of articles in women who have had no babies who are leaking. And what they found was the women who had the high impact exercises, those were the ones who were more likely to leak. That's where we got that 54%. Um, But interestingly, these women had thicker pelvic floor muscles. And that's not really what you would expect, right? (laughs) Because you would think a thicker muscle would close better, right? So what is the thing that is making the difference? Another study that was a secondary analysis released in 2021 showed that those athletes with higher incontinence were more likely to be of higher weight. So now we're talking about the athlete's weight not necessarily obese, but just of higher weight. And then they had stronger pelvic floor muscles, which goes along with the other study, but also stronger abdominal muscles. And I'll get back to that in just a moment, because that's pretty key as well. But here's the thing that I believe has a great impact on the system, and that is lower endurance. I have a lot of people that come to me and they say, I have been doing Kegel exercises for five years and they don't work. And so you know what I say? I say, good, because we're not doing Kegel exercises. We're going to do pelvic floor muscle training, which is way more than what they think it is. But the thing when I ask them, what have you been doing? What it ends up is squeeze, relax, squeeze, relax, squeeze, relax. This is not going to get you where you want to be. And, and the other thing I, I use, this analogy you will love, when you are training pelvic floor muscles, you, this is an endurance muscle. It's a postural muscle, right? Just like other postural muscles in the body, we need endurance for them. And in order to get endurance, you have to do a lot of them, a lot of them in a row. So I call the pelvic floor muscle a marathon runner. <laughs> and if you want to be able to do a marathon... It is not going to work to train one mile 26 times. That is genius, Beth. I love that. All right. (laughs) So you have got to put the miles together or you're not going to get to the marathon. And so sometimes women are telling me that they do. I have this one woman. She said, I do those exercises you told me all day long. Well, she's doing like squeeze and hold once, and then, you know, 20 minutes later, she does another squeeze and hold, and then, you know, maybe she does three in a row, but this is not how you're going to get the marathon capacity of a muscle. Mm -mm. So we realize that endurance is very important, but here's another important list. This is a meta-analysis looking at all types of athletes, low, medium, and high-impact sports. And this is what they found the risk factors to be. Eating disorders, constipation, a family history of incontinence. And this is really interesting because there have been many studies looking at pelvic organ prolapse and the, the quality of your tissue, the elasticity of your tissue which is genetic, 
right? Yep. And unfortunately, redheads have more elastic tissue that can and has been shown to be related to more pelvic organ prolapse. Can you um, explain what that is, Beth, for people who don't know? Pelvic organ prolapse. This is when the organs sag. Gravity is a formidable force. And we all sag as we get older. Sag, boobs sag, (laughs) chin sags, arms sag, and the pelvis sags. Now, sometimes we've pushed it down in childbirth in particular, or being constipated for years and years. But this is when the organs have fallen and they are either at the entrance or coming out, pelvic organ prolapse. So it speaks to the elasticity, the lack of bounce. So the the extra stretchability, it allows them to go down. So this was found to be genetic. And this study showed a family history of incontinence was related to more occurrence of incontinence in the female athletes. So you can blame your mom. Uh, A history of urinary tract infections. And lastly, you guys are going to eat this one up. Decreased flexibility of the plantar arch in the foot. That is so interesting. But, you know, it... You've probably heard of the um, school, well, not school of thought, but thinking about different diaphragms in the body, right? And the arch of the foot is considered one of them. And it helps the whole body to accept compression. So if... And the pelvic floor is a diaphragm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the respiratory diaphragm, of course. And they stack on top of each other and push down. Yep. <laughs> so the thing with this study is that we do not know chicken and egg. Right, we, we know these are risk factors, but we don't have information as to whether having this um, decreased flexibility of the arch is causative on the incontinence or somehow related to something else related to the incontinence. We, we don't really have all of the data yet, but I, I really think it's super important for people to understand that this is a complex system and there is much more at stake than just having a strong pelvic floor muscle. And this is good news and bad news. It's good news because it's quite complicated. I mean, it's bad news because it's quite complicated, but it's good news because if there's something you can't change, like the fact that your mother had urinary incontinence, There are many things that you can change, and they do appear to have an impact on the occurrence of leakage. That is very good news. Um, One thing that was interesting in reading these studies that you shared with us is it seems like there's not quite an agreement or the studies that are out there haven't quite honed in on the exact mechanism. Is it that it is decreased endurance of the pelvic floor musculature, or is it that it's too much or stronger pelvic floor musculature in addition to stronger abdominals not um, not allowing the bladder to be properly supported. Yes, that is the Nobel Prize question. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, we are doing better with research as the years go. When I first started in the 1990s, 
we we didn't have any of this information. We were really just flying blind in a lot of situations. But research nowadays is getting better at really picking away and getting down to the pointiness of things. We also recognize that in a group of 50 female runners, you're going to have probably 30 different mechanisms of leakage, Mm -hmm. right? So different body types, different systems, different ways of running. I mean, there's lots of different impacts. So we don't completely know. Personally, I see in my practice the great influence of endurance. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I really hope uh, if you do, you people who are listening, uh, try pelvic floor muscle training, that you will strive to achieve a solid 10-second pelvic floor muscle contraction. And my goal of 10-second hold is 30 repetitions. Now, there are lots of different ways to contract muscles, but what I'm talking about here is maximal contraction, 100% effort, 10 seconds. Sometimes people come in and they say, well, I can hold that squeeze for a minute. Okay, let me get out my handy-dandy electromyography So I'm going to put your muscle on my EMG machine. I'm going to look at the screen just like a um, a EKG. You all know what EKG is, right? Bleep, 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 bleep. Well, I can look at the muscle similarly. And what I often see is a good big squeeze and then it gradually goes down even before 10 seconds. And what people are holding for a minute is a submaximal contraction. Now, these are both important. So I do want to train submaximal, actually up to two minutes on the submax, uh, but I don't do as many of those. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right? But on the maximal squeeze, 10 second hold, 10 second rest, 30 repetitions. Now, we mentioned Kegel before. Did you know that there was a real guy? Yes, Mr. Kegel yes. or Dr. Kegel, right? Dr. Mm -hmm. Arnold Kegel, absolutely. And so he was a a gynecologist in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and uh, he asked his patients to do 300 a day (laughs) and probably nothing else, right? Because that's a lot. We, We do actually pretty much know that you don't need to do 300. The exact number is not the same for every person. I strive in my patients for somewhere between 60 to 80. And it depends whether you're trying to maintain. So I don't want to leak. You don't have to do as many. Or I am leaking and I'm trying to recover. You got to do more. That's a great tip. And would they do that every day or every other day? Well, if you're training because you're leaking, Mm -hmm. it would be every day. But if you're maintaining, oftentimes maintenance can be as low as 10 repetitions a day, as low as three times a week. So um, I would suggest, even if you're not leaking, I would suggest to go through a bit of training and get that muscle up to speed a little bit more. But then also to consider the possibility that um, uh, you could do it on the days that you run. Or maybe right before you run, or maybe if you're in the gym on the opposite days, we'll do it on the days you're in the gym. 
but buddy it up with something. Makes it easier to stay consistent when you do that, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I think a lot of people are not familiar with what seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist is like. You know, a lot of runners have hurt their Achilles or hurt their knee, and they know what that kind of PT is like. But let's say a female runner was experiencing leakage while running, and they decided to come see you. What would that first visit be like? So the um, process of uh, looking at, uh, assessing, or measuring the pelvic floor muscle can have several different forms. Um, I can tell you how I would in my practice, and different physical therapists may have different uh, accessibility, but I use four different techniques. The first one is to look on the outside. Just like I described to you, I would give you a mirror and you and I would look together. I would point out where I think things are going well, um, the height of the muscle as compared to where the sit bones are, what happens when you squeeze, what happens when you relax, what happens when you bear down as if you're moving your bowels, and what happens when you cough. We'll look at that on the outside. Then, with the patient's permission, my finger on the inside, female vagina, male rectum, uh, touching the muscle, and it's only about that far in, so it's not very far, but by touching the muscle, I can get a better idea about how much muscle is there. Uh, Is there an ability to close well? And how many seconds can you hold it? Does it hurt? But even interestingly, Andrea, does it relax? Right. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes the muscle is too tight. And, and here's another analogy that can work. If I asked you to hold a brick in your arm all day long, and at the end of the day, I asked you to throw that brick, are you going to be able to throw it? Nope. <laughs> no, because your bicep is going to be so cramped up, you're not going to be able to get that movement. So the ability of the muscle, not only to squeeze, but also to relax, and that can be by the measurement on the inside. I mentioned the EMG, and there are little sticky patches that are used on the outside of the rectum or a sensor going inside the vagina to attach to the machine, and there's several testing maneuvers for that. And in my clinic, I have imaging ultrasound. This is like the baby or the gallbladder ultrasound, where we're actually watching the influence of the pelvic floor muscle on the canals, either above the pubic bone with a pretty full bladder. Can you lift the bladder? We can see that, or the lack thereof. And then at the entrance to the vagina, there is also the ability to see the movement of the urethra. And this is where we would measure men at the perineum of the male. Can you close the urethra? So these are the measurements of the pelvic floor muscle. I would also be going through a whole list of other components. So I wonder if we could talk about some of the other abnormal forces that I hope people will pay attention to. Absolutely. We are all about comprehensive assessment and treatment here. (laughs) Good, good, good. So, you know, when I was in school, I 
uh, went to a very large university in Boston for my undergraduate education. And I took physics in one of those rooms that you see in the um, movies where the instructor is like this big and you've got like, you know, 400 people in this room and... And he had this accent that was really difficult to understand, and I hated the whole class, and I swore I'd never use it. But guess what? (laughs) I do. And this is one of those circumstances. So when you think about the bladder in the middle, and then you have forces from above, and you have forces from below, and whichever group of forces wins is the one that you're going to have the result of. And what we've been talking about are the forces from below that are related to the pelvic floor muscle. Now, there's some other forces from below we can get to after if you'd like to talk about things like pessaries, the Impreza, or uh, surgical procedures. But I hope we don't have to go to that uh, extent. Um, In some cases, it's necessary. But really, you know, we want to increase the force from below, but also it is important to affect, to normalize the forces from above. And we talked already about the weight. And when you have uh, more weight above, there is more force coming down. So normalizing weight is pretty good. We also talked about constipation. And when you have a lot of stuff in the tube, it weighs more and it sits right on top of the bladder. And that makes it harder for that sphincter muscle, even a normal sphincter muscle, to hold against it. So it, it is important to have a good... Um, healing part, uh, a good education. I mean, who teaches you how to pee and poop? Well, I will tell you who teaches you how to pee and poop. A pelvic physical therapist teaches you. (laughs) Your physician is not going to do that, guys. So if you want to know how it really works, then you go to a pelvic therapist. Uh, But the next on the list is a thing that is near to and dear to most physical therapists, and that is the big P, posture. Oh, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Posture, posture, posture. So just think about the canister. We've got the respiratory diaphragm at the top. We've got the pelvic diaphragm at the bottom. And there's a number of objects in this space. In the neutral position with the ribs up high, those objects exert a certain amount of force on top of the bladder. Gravity is there and these, these things have weight. When you take your rib cage and you crunch down in a slouchy posture, now you have a smaller space. Do you not? The, the abdominal pelvic canister is smaller but there are the same number of objects in there. So what does physics tell us happens to the forces? More, right? Yep, increased More pressure. More <laughs> forces down on top of the bladder. So for lots of reasons, we don't want to run with a slouchy chest because it doesn't help our lungs our, our capacity of breathing, it doesn't help our upper back or our spine, and it does not help our bladders. So good posture, and good posture, of course, at other times as well. Right. Something uh, I mentioned to a lot of my patients is, you know, we all believe in the benefits of exercise, and we might spend an hour or two a day exercising to improve our bodies. 
But what happens the other eight hours a day if you're sitting at your desk, slouched, leaning to one side, that trains your tissues. Our tissues follow whatever conditions we put them in. So if you're slouching all day, you're also creating tightness in your abdominal muscles, in your diaphragm. So then you go to run. And even if you want to have perfect posture, it might be hard to achieve because of all that time you just spent slouched. And now you can tell them that they will leak less. Yes. I'm going to add that to the list. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am not a running trainer, but I do know, and it, this happens with walking as well, that some people pound the ground. And this is not good for the feet, the knees, the spine, and it's not good for the bladder. Abnormal downward force related to pounding does impact the occurrence of leakage. And um, this, you know, there's lots of strategies to landing in the middle uh, or the front of the foot as opposed to a big hard heel land, uh, softening your steps, um, even considering what your uh, on, whether that's a shoe or a um, piece of cement or, um, you know, the treadmill, the qualities of the treadmill, they all can affect these rebound forces that can be a factor in the pelvis as well as other parts of the chain. Right. That's interesting yes. that you say that, Beth, because in the running world, um, there's in the past several years, there's been a huge sea change in terms of these super shoes that are now available. And they're the particular characteristics of them are they have foam that returns significantly more energy than previous foams, and they all have a carbon plate. So they tend to increase the bouncing nature of somebody's stride. So it would be a very niche study. But to look at the different potential differences in urinary incontinence based on different running footwear. <laughs> That's your study, there guys. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could do it relatively easily by a uh, correlation. You could just take a survey. What is your shoe? Mm -hmm. And do you have leakage? Mm -hmm. And just you know, then you know the what the shoe qualities are, mm -hmm. and you might be able to create some categories of bounce, and you can, uh, yeah. All right, Very Megan, we've got a project now. <laughs> <laughs> so, absolutely. In addition to like the forces in the canister, I love that analogy. What else do you look at? Like, do you look at hip strength? How would you assess somebody's abdominal strength to see, are they, do they have balanced core strength? Are they too strong in one muscle versus another? Mm -hmm. What else do you look at? Yep, absolutely. The ab excessive abdominal activity is so interesting because the majority of what people think about is saggy belly. Right. And especially this is so important in women who have had no babies, what we call nulliparous. 
So women who have had babies, I don't see a lot of this excessive tension. It is possible. But in uh, young women, the abdominal muscles can become so constricted and tight and they're holding themselves all the time so tight. So now you've had, you, you don't have the ability to expand. And not only does it affect a breathing mechanism, but it's going to place excessive pressure downward. But here's another interesting recognition. The pelvic and the belly are buddies. So I wonder if we could try something real quick, if we could. Um, I like experiential things, you know. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> so, well, good, good. So while we're sitting here, can you do a diaphragm breath? So as you breathe with your diaphragm, your belly comes out on the inhale, and then it goes inward on the exhale. So what? pay attention to your belly first. Inhale, belly out, exhale, belly down. Okay, so as you keep doing that, notice what's happening at that spot in between your sit bones, okay? So as you breathe in and your belly goes out, what does your pelvic do? Does it come towards the chair or away from the chair? It's very small, so you really have to pay attention to it. What do you guys think? Feels like it comes towards the chair. When you do breathe in, inhale, yeah. and that's correct. So this is ideal that when the belly goes out, the pelvic goes down and these are relaxed states. Both of them are relaxed. Now, sometimes people get into bad habits and this is something that I would train in that you can expand your pelvic muscle when you expand your belly as you inhale. That's great. I like that. So these, it helps to restore the normal movement within the canister. Now, when there is an excessive inward movement, we often see an excessive upward pelvic spasm, tight, not letting go system. And all of that makes it difficult for the pelvic muscle and the sphincters to do the right thing. If you had a patient where you saw that, what types of treatment techniques would you use to help them? Well, the first thing is the diaphragm breath. Um, one more thing in, the, in regards to assessment, if I can. Obviously, when you're thinking about a tight muscle, you're going to touch the muscle, right? So do you have a, a firm like spasm tight muscle and does it hurt all over the abdominals? But here's another good piece to look at. At the xiphoid process, this inferior angle of the ribs, if you take your thumbs and you put them together like this, where is this inferior rib angle on the patient? It should be about 90 degrees. If it's much wider than 90, it usually means that they have a saggy, long muscle. But these, uh, in particular women, but also men, and I, I've seen it in young kids too, where it's pulled in even like to 70 degrees. And that's because these muscles are tight and short and they're pulling in. So when there is a short muscle, what I like is cobra. Mm -hmm. That's a great. I like 
that prone press-up position and not to pump the disc, but to hold a sustained position of stretch. How long should they hold it? Well, it depends a bit on what's going on in the back. Mm -hmm, Definitely. (laughs) But... I mean, we know that stretches, if you're going to really elongate the muscle, it's like 30 seconds. Yeah, minimum. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a long stretch. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can't go all the way into the cobra. I like to use breathing, so I flare the ribs in the cobra. That pulls the muscle even more. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes, too, the top of the door frame. Yeah. Now, I know you can't tell at the moment, but I'm kind of short. So I can't reach the door frame, but some of my patients, they hold on and then they walk through the door and they get that extension stretch that way. And it, it can work quite well. Um, I think that the, the hip flexors, the psoas, you know, the Thomas stretch, that can be quite useful in the abdominal wall. I will get in there with my treatment, my myofascial treatment of the abdominal wall Um, sometimes heat works quite well. So that's kind of the belly package. Now, as far as the pelvic floor, this is a little bit more complex. I do use my EMG for down training, for relaxation training of the pelvic floor. I use the um, diaphragm breathing. And I also um, try what I call anti-kegels. Now this, it's kind of important to know what the muscle's doing. So you need to have the EMG in order to really be sure. But, you know, Kegel, Kegel exercise, this is for strength training. So what would anti-Kegel be for? Relaxation. Relaxation training, exactly. So it would be a small squeeze with a big relax. And when you're in the relax phase, which is way longer than the squeeze phase, so like two-second squeeze, 10-second rest, you're focusing on relaxing the glutes, the abdominals, the adductors. These are all overflow muscles of the pelvic floor or helper muscles, or in some cases, cheater muscles if you're trying to strengthen. Um, but there are techniques where you would go in and massage and stretch the vaginal uh, pelvic floor muscle as a trained therapist um, and a few other things that, that may be specific to certain conditions. But those are some of the things that you might be able to do yourself and also what a therapist might do. Now, there's another piece of the trunk that's interesting, and that is arm swing. Some of the literature is talking about how the side-to-side arm swing is creating more downward force, and that can make more chance of leakage, and that if you have more of the the front-to-back arm swing, then you have less of that trunk involvement in the wrong direction. That's very interesting, and that's an easy cue for runners to work on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Now, you mentioned the hip muscles, and I will tell you that the the lateral hip muscles, the abductors, these are sneaky muscles. And it is, as you grow older, the so gradually changing weakness that you don't even know that it's there until it's super weak. 
So it's an important muscle group to pay attention to at the beginning and all the way through, and especially for, you know, the, the 40, 50-year-old runners or um, people who are coming back to running after a baby or an injury, that we make sure that these AB doctors are, are good and strong to accept the force, the entire force of your body, more than even your weight, uh, on one foot uh, over and over again for, you know, some number of miles. Um, but the external rotators also important. And it's interesting to recognize that one particular external rotator of the hip, the obturator internist, is actually the sidewall of the pelvic floor. So the pelvic floor is here front to back. And the obturator internist is the sidewall that attaches to it. So um, important muscles to uh, have for sure involved. Yeah, um, I'm familiar with uh, Janet Hulme. I'm sure you are too. And that's a big part of her um, exercise system is targeting the obturator internist muscle. How might somebody do that? What's a good exercise for that muscle? So... It's interesting to look at the breadth of research in pelvic floor muscle training. So what we're talking about here is a pelvic floor muscle that's weak. We know it's weak and we're trying to increase the contractile or the squeezing function of it. And overwhelmingly, the majority of research that's done, good research, of course, is with the training program of isolated pelvic floor muscle training. So you're not using other muscles in the mix. Pelvic floor muscle training, isolated. Now, from there, there are functional pelvic floor muscle trainings. So squeeze before you sneeze, right? This is a function. And and sometimes with certain impact uh, athletes in my clinic, I will have them practice squeeze the pelvic floor before you step off the box. Oh, uh uh-huh. You know, we we train the uh, medial quad that way in certain knee injuries. So squeezing before certain functional activities is very useful. The third category is what's called overflow. And that's where Jan Hume's technique comes in. What she's doing is using some of the muscles that appear to be synergistic to the pelvic floor in order to, what some people say, come in through the back door. Now, a lot of pelvic therapists will only use synergistic muscles in a a pelvic floor that is very, very weak. So not in your typical athlete because Mm -hmm. it's not a weak muscle. Um, They might use it in an elderly patient that doesn't have cognitive ability or in a very early postpartum woman. Um, so different techniques in different practices. Now, not to say that we haven't had research because there has been research in young stress incontinent women who get better no matter what you do almost, <laughs> but that these overflow techniques can be useful. 
So for those who are listening, if you really are not sure what you're doing and you want to give a try to these overflow exercises, it's okay to try. But please remember, if you don't have success, the pelvic physical therapist is going to really be able to weed down into what's going on and help you to understand. Even just a couple of sessions can be really helpful in opening the door for what's the right thing. But the question is, what are they? So in a study that was done with ultrasound and pressure biofeedback, you know, sometimes I think to myself, God bless the women who volunteered for that study. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because these women were doing exercise with a pressure device inside their vagina and an ultrasound head on their suprapubic (laughs) abdominal area. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So... Well, thank goodness they did it because this is what we know. Plank, bird dog, and bilateral leg lowering, if you can do it well, are the best exercises for overflowing to the pelvic floor. Awesome. That's great to know. So so there's your little, your mini. Mm -hmm. Now, these other muscle groups like the, the external rotators, um, have been done to some degree, and and it does seem like they help, but we're, there's still a lot of research to be done, and so I, I get I do give a caution, but I wonder if people know what the clam exercise is. So this is when you're lying on your side, your knees are bent, your feet are together, and you just lift your knee up, and and do. I'm not really describing it well, but. The clam exercise can be done with a band around the knees or just above the knees that gives some resistance. You can do that also in sitting. So just sitting in a chair with a band just above the knees, separate your knees. Now, this is abduction, right? Abduction, but also there's a component of of rotation. So what are we actually doing? We don't have the basic science. It's all clinical research at this point. The other piece of that puzzle is squeeze. So the adductors, if you put a ball in between your knees and you squeeze together, this can help uh, activate. Uh, And especially if you try to squeeze the pelvic floor at the same time as you do these things, they can be quite useful. So squeeze the ball, push against the band. Those are often used in overflow. Okay exercise. That's great. And thank you for making that distinction between like true pelvic floor muscle strengthening and overflow exercises. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another question Lots I had for you is about biofeedback because biofeedback technology has really improved over the years and now people can get biofeedback units to use at home. Is that right? So like what type of homework might you give a patient if they got a home biofeedback unit? You know, it's interesting because this is a study that has been done over and over and over and over. I I think I probably know of, of, I don't know, six or seven studies where they randomly assign half the people to have a, a home trainer and half the people to just go to pelvic therapy. And they 
you know, see, compare what happens. And um, it, it, there isn't a statistically significant difference. So if you have a pelvic physical therapist near you, then I would highly recommend that you try to get in and see that person a couple of times and see what her bio or his biofeedback says, and then just do the exercises on your own because they're usually quite effective, especially in athletes who are body aware and young people who maybe don't have neurological disorder or dementia, you know, that sort of a thing. Um, now, there are certainly challenges getting into a therapist office. I just had a patient call me yesterday, and the a hospital pelvic therapy clinic is got a three-month waiting list, and they wanted to get in earlier. I have heard in California, one year waiting list oh my to get into a pelvic therapist. Anybody who's a physical therapist looking for a niche that's going to be successfully attracting patients, pelvic therapy is one of those. There are not enough of us. Um, so uh, there may be a situation where people listening don't have a pelvic therapist. I have people that are driving two hours to see me. So maybe this is part of the challenge, or maybe it's difficult because there's a lot of um, time issue. You know, you're not able to get off of work or you don't have a babysitter. You know, there may be reasons why getting to a pelvic therapist is not the thing. And so on Amazon, as we know, as well as other um, places to purchase these home trainers, there are a couple of different units. I will tell you though, please, please, please do not buy the Thighmaster version. So have you seen this thing that it goes up at the uh, vagina? It looks just like a thigh master and, and all you're doing is adducting. Oh gosh. So, so this is not the thing. If you're going to use a home trainer, something that goes inside is the thing. I don't know if you, it, you know, want me to tell some brand names. I don't know, but, um, there, there are devices that go in. They are, um, pressure devices. So you got to be doing the right thing because if you if you bear down like that, the pressure is going to go up and it's going to look like you're doing a kegel when in fact you're doing the exact opposite. But if you're pretty sure you're doing the right thing, you know, the squeezing in and up, then these home trainers can be really neat and they Bluetooth to your phone. That's cool. <laughs> Dr. Kegel never had that. When you send uh, one of your clients home with a home exercise program, um, you, you mentioned usually once they have the contraction or the activation of the muscles, they're, they're pretty good going forward. Are there any compensatory mechanisms or anything that you tell them to look out for when the muscle does fatigue? Yes. Um, oftentimes, when, after they've been, had the feedback, they can feel when it's fatiguing, but it's the cheater muscles, really. So when they feel that their glutes are squeezing, and, and each person has a little different cheating mechanism, so we'll identify. And, and I'll have them, the patient put their hand on top of the muscle, so on top of the thigh, the quad, the adductor, the glutes, the belly, so that they can feel when they're cheating. But here's another thing that's super important, especially when you get to the 10-second hold, is holding your breath. 
And that's often what happens when you start to get tired and you're just not doing it well. And if your technique is not good, just take a break. And, and you know, we talked about the 30 reps, but sometimes it's best to do 10, take a minute, do 10, take a minute, do 10, just like we do other muscles. Right. We have to remember this is yet another muscle group treated the same way, right? Mm-hmm. And physical therapists have that knowledge and should be able to offer, every therapist should be able to offer small beginner instructions like we're talking about here. And then to be able to identify a person who needs more and know where to send them. And so if I can um, provide a time Because if this person, the patient or the person who's trying it on their own, has been working for one month and there is not a significant, in my clinic, I expect 50% improvement in one month. Now, maybe, you know, you don't have as much of the access as I do, but there should be a measurable difference in one month. If there is not, then get to a specialist. That's a good guideline. Yeah. Um, how might a person find a pelvic floor physical therapist? Is there a online registry where they can look? Um, yes, there are a couple of different places. Um, there, uh, the Pelvic Academy of the American Physical Therapy Association is one of the professional groups that has a, a find a therapist section. Uh, the APTA itself, the American Physical Therapy Association itself, has a website. Is it called Move On Moving Move, something? Move On PT, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and you have a place that you can put in specialist. And even if you're a male, unfortunately, what you're going to look for is a women's health physical therapist. And on many of these locations, the therapist will have put in what their specialty is, and they might list males if they do see males and um, pregnant pregnancy or, or incontinence. But that find a physical therapy site is useful. Um, there is a group called NAFC, the National Association of for continents, National Association for Continents, NAFC. And that is an overall self-help support group for people with urinary incontinence. So all ages, they have a great website with lots of um, things that are um, helpful, uh, educational things for patients, but they also have a find a physical therapist site. That's great. We'll provide those links in the episode comments for our listeners. Thanks, Beth. Great. Thank you. Thank you. I have one question for you. You know, in talking to other runners that I know, and actually in talking to a couple doctors I know, the most common thing I've actually heard that people who, runners or people who are exercising, do to reduce leaking when they're exercising is using a tampon. So can you tell us, is that something that you recommend? And if so, how does it work? Right. Well, this, I had sort of alluded to this before, um, where we were talking about containment. Containment is often the incontinent pads. And I will tell you this also, just a side note on the pads. Pads for menstrual cycle are best suited for the thickness of the menstrual flow 
not leakage of urine. So if you are having trouble with leakage of urine, please consider the um, urine leakage pads because they work a lot better. And there are cotton pads that are used for leakage of urine also. And then we talked about the underpants. Um, so from there, the issue of containment kind of steps into the realm of the tampon or the thing called Impreza, which is a thing that you can purchase over the counter that's very much like a um, a pessary. So the pessary would be the prescription version. And this is what I call a space-occupying object. In the pelvis, you have the urethra and the vagina and then the rectum. And if you can fill this space, you compress the urethra. Now, a pessary is like a diaphragm that would be used for birth control. And it is placed up at the cervix and it puts pressure on the cervix. So putting, uh, helping the cervix, or sorry, the urethra, helps st- the urethra stay closer to the pubic bone and that helps it stay closed. So these are objects, the tampon, the Impreza, and the um, pessary, that just help put pressure on the urethra. Now, the next question is, do I recommend these things? Well, I really hope that the pelvic floor muscle will do its job and that you won't have to have an object in there. But there are circumstances where, for other reasons like birth injury, or maybe there is a little bit of a neurological insult to the system, a a back injury or uh, diabetes can be a little bit of a nerve injury there that we have to overcome. And uh, that might be where we use these objects. And so, yes, it is useful. I wish you would strengthen your muscle first and then consider it if you absolutely need to. And the same thing with the pads as well. Can I tell you about one more uh, item? Absolutely. Yes. And that is the um, electrical stimulation. Maybe some people in the audience have heard of it. Anovo is the name of it. Anyway, it's a, it's a pair of pants. There are electrical stimulation devices that go inside the vagina. And there also is one, the ellipse, that you um, stick to the outside of you. So there's several different versions of electrical stimulation. Now, for those of us physical therapists, we know that electrical stimulation can be used in very weak muscles. We put something here and we strengthen the muscle that we're trying to get better. So it stands to reason that we should have electrical stimulation for this skeletal muscle. And there is. And there is some data that shows that this is helpful. Uh, Personally, I hope that people will try active pelvic muscle exercises first to increase the muscle ability. But again, in certain circumstances, I've used all of those versions I just uh, mentioned, and they can be useful in helping to augment in situations where there is not access to some of the other treatments of a pelvic therapist, or there is something that you have to overcome. That's great. Yeah. You've given us so many good tips and just provided us such a great education on why runners might leak and 
things to do about it, how to find someone who can help you. Um, it's just been so great having you on here, Beth. Megan, do you have any other questions for Beth? Um, no, I learned a lot just through this podcast here. I learned a lot through the um, articles that you shared, and I know this is going to open a lot of our, a lot of eyes for our viewers too, and even make them more aware of things they can do to help even avoid this from ever becoming a problem. Maybe adding it into their like what you mentioned before, three times a week, trying to throw it in with before or after a strength program, before or after a run. I think it's going to open a lot of eyes. This is very this is excellent. Well, I'm thankful that you gave me the time to speak to this very specific group uh, because it is important and people don't talk about it enough. And I would like to offer to be a resource to physical therapists and patients. You are welcome to contact me and you can put my um, website in the um, podcast link. I do have some resources there for patients and I have an entire separate site for professionals. I do mentorship of therapists who are training in pelvic therapy. I'm certainly happy to help uh, as time goes on um, because really my goal is to um, help people feel good about what they're doing in exercise and really enjoy it. And if things are happening that make you wet, it's not enjoyable. Right. Well, thank you so much, Beth. And I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but every uh, episode we have a subjective question and we decided since we're so lucky to have someone so incredibly knowledgeable about this topic, Beth has agreed to answer some Q&A questions from our listeners. So on YouTube, on social media, on the podcast apps, if you have a question for Beth about anything pelvic floor related, uh, PT related, please leave it in there and we'll select several and she'll answer them after the podcast is released. All right. Well, Beth and Megan, it's been great having this incredibly informative conversation. I hope you both have a good evening. And thanks again for everyone for listening. Thank you so much, Beth.